This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's hear it for our super producer, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Max Williams. Oh, Uh, you're Noel. I'm Ben. Yeah. And uh, uh, we are finally recording in the same city again, I want to say. Yes. It feels good. It feels, it feels good. good. And and hopefully, uh, peek behind the curtain, folks, hopefully we three will be recording in person sooner rather than later as the uh, as the iHeart podcast office nears completion. Very excited mm-hmm. about that. Been a long time coming. Uh, we've obviously gotten the hang of this whole remote thing, the new way, but there's something kind of charming and quaint about being in the same room, looking at each other in the uh, the IRL eyeballs instead of uh, gazing into a screen. I miss the smell. Oh, yeah. All of we us were... in there together. Doing, yeah. Doing Boys the, Town. Doing, doing oh, boy. harder together. Yeah. Yeah, it gradually builds uh, along with the temperature. Uh, the last time we recorded in person together uh, was in... The old iHeart office uh, in the legendary Stuff You Should Know studio. And the legendary Stuff You Should Know studio is legendarily small and legendarily not ventilated, <laughs> I think we right. can say. Right. 
it gives you um a bit of a, a bit of the sweats sometimes but we do enjoy the energy and there's there's sort of this epidemic good vibe that occurs when when we're in person and we all three are actually friends outside of the show this is not an act so we do love to hang out together we can't wait to uh record in person and maybe uh one day we can get this show on the road and uh and, you know get it out on its feet in front of an audience what do you think no I'm into it, but for now, we can, like, figuratively get this show on the road and talk about not just epidemics of good vibes, but epidemics of, like, you know, diseases, bad vibes, really. Yeah, just so there are a lot of epidemics throughout the span of human history, and some of these remain largely unexplained in the modern day. Fellow Ridiculous Historians, you'll recall that uh, not too long ago, we talked about the Dancing Plague. I think we had an ABBA parody that came up. And oh, classic. Dancing classic. Legs, <laughs> right. Twist and scream. Oh, I don't remember the rest. The twist and scream. Uh, yeah, and this, this, this episode today was originally going to be some kind of bonus plagues, if you will, tacked on to the end of that episode, but we realized that we had more than enough with the dancing plague alone to fill out an episode. So we figured we'd uh, stick these to the side and add a little bit to them. And now here we are with uh, just some strange and ridiculous plagues throughout history. Yeah. yeah. So let's start with one that's uh, close to our uh, top of the show conversation. Let's talk about sweating sickness and uh, Picardi sweat. Star Trek related, right? I, Unfortunately, uh, my friend, it does not have anything to do with the uh, uh, John Luke Picard. I know. I researched the wrong thing again. <laughs> same, same. I was halfway through uh, when I figured it out, and I, I uh, texted Patrick Stewart, and uh, you know, he mainly texts back in emoji, um, but he seemed amused as well. A little, little bald person emoji, I assume. Yeah, yeah. What do you call it? Bitmoji? He he just discovered Bitmoji. He loves them like everybody else's parents. Yeah, I mean, you know, but here, the, the, the silver lining here is I'm almost entirely through the entirety of the Star Trek canon. So soon I'll be able to actually carry a conversation with Max Williams. <laughs> and then I'll just change it to sports. Oh, now that I can't. That canon is a bit uh, too tall in order for me. I don't think I can get through the canon of all sports. Oh, I got to tell you, I... uh I can't remember if I sent this to both of you guys. Definitely sent to you, Max. Curling is an epidemic in Japan now. Oh, they oh. love it. They love it, it. It's all over the place. Um, <laughs> Korea, too. Curling's mm-hmm. huge in Korea also. And I think everyone can agree, and hopefully you can agree after hearing this, folks, you uh, should prefer an epidemic of curling to an epidemic of sweating sickness. Uh, what? What is sweating sickness, Noel? I, I, like, I can't believe we didn't talk about this with the dancing plague. Is it still kind of inexplicable or is it just a European thing? What do we know about? Boy, is it. Much like ABBA, although ABBA, you know, made its way across the universe, uh, mm-hmm. really took it by storm. I mean, they've got like a Broadway play and everything. This plague did not get a Broadway uh, musical, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, it might have been a bit of a bummer, but... This plague uh, was very specific to England. It was also known as the English sweat uh, or English sweating sickness. And it is an epidemic of unknown origin that popped up in England five different times. 
And aside from the second of those times, um, which was relatively mild, the other four were incredibly severe. A lot of people lost their lives. It began with uh, things like headaches and uh, what, what is being reported in Britannica as giddiness, which mm. I love, but also not a good kind of giddiness. I'm imagining this is some sort of like nervous energy and kind of almost madness kind Maybe of, almost right? Maybe vertigo too. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and again, uh, in some of the sources that Britannica is citing, severe prostration, which would we talked about that recently as well. Prostration being when you kind of lay on the ground in almost a fetal position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, prostration is lying stretched out on the ground, specifically with your face facing down. Hmm? Uh, so it's it's not the most advantageous position, which also kind of reinforces the idea of vertigo here. And astute listeners, you may remember that we explored this not too, too long ago in an episode on Henry VIII and that English sweat I remember being in love with that title, <laughs> but uh, but this was and this a, is not the same, right? This is is this the same English sweat that Henry VIII? Uh, this is the very this is the very same. We focused on we focused on our boy Henry VIII, but um, but this was obviously affecting other people. the The strange thing is that this remains a mystery. We know about the symptoms, and this was not a fun epidemic. It was a fatal one, and when people got the first symptoms, uh, then they typically, if they were going to die, they would die in a window of three to 18 hours, which is a, a crazy short time, you know? Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting, too, the whole prostration element. Um, you know, prostration is also something often associated with religious ritual, mm -hmm. you know, to prostrate yourself before God. It's also something that you see often in Islam uh, with uh, calls to prayer, you know, uh, on your prayer rug and all of that. Uh, the penitent that, man kneels yeah, before God. A million percent. So it makes sense that a lot of these epidemics were associated with some sort of curse or, mm -hmm. you know, a vengeful God, you know, the idea that folks were being forced into these positions, uh, almost like a Sodom and Gomorrah type attack. You would occasionally, in addition to those other symptoms that we talked about, uh, get a, a pretty nasty rash. And um, if you if you did get it, it was not something that you could then be immune to. Which so is the folks, worst. Now it's awful. And that was kind of, you know, similar to COVID where some people, it seemed, were immune after getting it. But then we, we, we all of a sudden, when we didn't know what the deal was with COVID, we realized that people were getting it multiple times. So this mm -hmm. seems to be kind of similar, although some people were more resilient than others. But you got to wonder, too, without any real scientific research at the time available, if this may be resulted from a mutation. Yeah. And this, again, this is a, an incredibly frightening time for people. We still don't know how it was transmitted necessarily. There are some theories, but this seemed to target young men and often target the wealthy and the powerful, which you can only imagine kind of added to the idea of it being a divine punishment. That's right. <laughs> it's, it's strange because the sweating sickness epidemic 
when it came in these different waves, it was also particularly short-lived. It would just occur for a few weeks in places and move on. Also, it had some nicknames that we would love to share for you, with you uh, to the point about prostration. It was sometimes called the Stoop Gallant or Gallant uh, the, and the Stoop Knave. Like, you, you scamp. Ugh, <laughs> I like that one. And much like a a curse or uh you know biblical type punishment might you know be presumed to behave it vanished and then came back by uh 1578 it was gone almost entirely with no evidence left behind of what might have been uh its cause and then over a hundred years later we're in France now in the Jean-Luc Picardy region of France. I'm kidding. It's called the, just the Picardy region. But uh, the, presumably that is where Jean-Luc gets his namesake. You know, perhaps that was his uh, family seat. I don't know. Max, can you speak to the uh, the origin story of, of the Picard family? I don't know, Ben. Where is Chateau Picard? Do you know? Well, if you have to ask. Exactly. You're probably not invited. Yeah, Picardy, as we're calling it, in honor of our pal, or Picardy, is a region in France. It's kind of like, uh, th so think of to the north of the country. It's um, It used to be its own administrative region or historical territory, and now it's part of a new region. Quite recently, since 2016. History's closer than it looks in the rearview mirror. If you go there now... You might sweat depending on the weather and your activities, but you're hopefully not going to get the sweating sickness. And I can't believe we got this far uh, without mentioning just how much people were sweating. I wish English is so weird. I wish we could say they swat. But <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> that's not, uh, unfortunately, no. That's a, Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, sweated. Yes, they 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 sweated uh, yeah. for sure. Um, we have a guy by the name of Henry Tidy, which is a, a great name for Wonderful. a medical expert at the time. Uh, he was fairly certain that this was that same historical plague, uh, the sweating sickness, or uh, Suter Anglicus. And then it was kind of you know re re rebranded a little bit to the Picardy sweat. And this time it stuck around well into what we might consider more relatively modern history uh, until the end of World War One, uh, with one particularly debilitating outbreak uh, for the population hitting around 6,000 people in 1906. And then once again, like that, it was gone, like uh, Kaiser Soze style. And now uh, we all have to wonder every time we sweat, is this the beginning of a new English sweat? Uh, the, so far, the answer is no. Uh, but make sure to stay hydrated, folks. And if you if you feel uh, that you are being overcome by severe prostration, please do call a medical expert post-haste. No doubt. How long was that between these outbreaks in these two different regions? Uh, About 100 years? Yeah, Wasn't more than 100 yeah. years. All right. So we're not quite due for one yet. No, we are. We are so due. We're past We're due. in the Goldilocks range right now. Yeah, I think we are. So fingers crossed. And uh, like you said, Ben, stay hydrated. Stay frosty. Uh, <laughs> so now let's travel uh, to a different uh, part uh, of the world, uh, 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 perhaps. Uh, 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 what? 
What is this? <laughs> I'm just, I'm laughing because we're segueing to a laughter epidemic. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. Sorry. That was terrifying. I love it. Yeah, that would maybe be what would be considered giddiness, perhaps. Mm. Um, we're going to Tanzania. Hey, guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck... You buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. And the year is 1962. So laughter is already this very fascinating thing scientifically, right? Laughter is a language all its own. And sometimes you can hear laughs and you know that what someone is trying to communicate is not necessarily just innocuous amusement, right? There are evil laughs. There's Sesame Street laughs like the count. Ah, ah, ah. And uh, then there are laughs that sound like nervous laughter, right? Mm -hmm. Almost like a bark. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And laugh. <laughs> right? Whoa. Whoa. Mm -hmm. You put that one back in your laugh sack. <laughs> la laugh sack. Or, yeah, uh, uh, like the clown laugh, of course. <laughs> uh, 
Laughter can be a signal of distress. Also, I'm very proud that no one has heard my real laugh on air because it sounds frightening. Uh, but, but laughter Your can fake be... fake laughs are pretty frightening too, Ben. Fake laugh and fake laughs are pretty easy to detect, I would imagine, mm-hmm. for a lot of people, right? Uh, so it can come from unfunny places. It can come from anger, unfortunate surprise, sadness. It can be... Malevolence. Yeah, malevolence. <laughs> yeah. And it can come from an epidemic. The most famous example of this happened back when Tanzania was called Tanganyika uh, in 1962, But the weird thing is, unlike the sweating sickness, laughter epidemics are still around in the modern day. And we kind of touch on this in stuff they don't want you to know. I think a little bit when we talk about, you know, outbreaks of of mass psychogenic events. That's right. And we talked about that a good bit as well in our episode on the dancing plague, where part of the phenomenon of some of these things might be that, again, since we don't have, uh, you know, tests or like any kind of necessarily scientific data uh, to back these up, whether or not all of these cases were, in fact, infections or whether it was just kind of this mass hallucination or, or kind of like mass groupthink kind of copycatting, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And copycatting, that's an important point because we have to ask ourselves whether people are just communicating something social, right, versus something physiological, something psychological, right? Uh, and this outbreak in 1962, it occurs at an all-girls school and then it spreads to these other communities Current estimates say the laughter epidemic may have affected somewhere around a 1,000 people, and it lasted for months. This wasn't like the sweating sickness that only lasted for, you know, several hours or would pop up and then disappear. And we want to shout out an excellent article by our friends at Atlas Obscura. The 1962 laughter epidemic of Tanganyika was no joke. Get it? Shout out to Tao Tao Holmes. It did have a pattern, though. Like in most cases of mass psychogenic phenomenon, a single person would be the origin point, right? And this person in 1962 was a schoolgirl. And they fell into what experts believe was a fit of anxiety-induced laughter. And then the dominoes started to fall as well. And other girls started finding themselves laughing against their will, not in a fun way, uncontrollably. This reminds me a lot of another episode we did on stuff they don't want you to know about the Screaming Girls of Malaysia. Yeah. And I don't know that the video we had wasn't necessarily the exact instance that we talked about on the show, if I'm not mistaken, but there is a video you can find that shows this phenomenon like in full effect. And it is chilling. Yeah. No one's having fun. It is not a pleasant experience. And these students who were who who found themselves affected weren't just suffering from one bout of uncontrollable laughter it would come and it would go which is one of the most annoying things about hiccups if anybody has ever uh suffered from hiccups at which point i want to stop and ask uh you guys have a good hiccup cure uh your old roommate frank frank is probably the guy with the most consistent hiccup cure yeah, seen. he's like a hiccup uh, Sherpa Whisperer. or something. Yeah. Like, yeah, he does this move that's very much a 
psychological trick where he kind of get, he puts his hand on the top of your head and asks you to, fo- and he, he sort of like asks you to almost like funnel your hiccup energy up through the top of your head and mm-hmm. into his hand. And Very somehow, yeah, somehow the psychology of that does, I have seen it work. It's worked on me. I typically do the old hold your breath for about 10 seconds and then swallow. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of these remedies are kind of placebo-y effects, you know, it's not, but, but, you know, a lot of times the hiccups have to do with a, a spasm in your diaphragm. And if you are able to kind of like relax it by maybe doing this thing that I'm describing, it can make it go away, but it also doesn't work every time. And believing in the cure is almost more important than the cure itself. Yeah. And this happens with, uh, hiccups of course are not psychogenic. Right, the, the the hiccup is a spasm of the diaphragm, but in the case of the laughter epidemic of 1962, we saw that a lot of attempted cures didn't work because people didn't really understand what was happening. You would just fall into this bout of laughter that could last for a few hours, which is already a very long time to laugh, in my opinion, not to sound like a stick in the mud. (laughs) You're laughing too long. Uh, You don't like fun, Ben? You don't like parties? It's 45 (laughs) minutes. The fun is over. Uh, Exactly. We'll return to our regularly scheduled mirth tomorrow. Anyway, yeah, they were laughing for 16 days doesn't seem fun at that point it does it, it is kind of like an inescapable bout of hiccups and people were running around too they were very agitated there was occasional violence but no one could figure out what was causing it and this is where we have to introduce Christian Hempelman of Texas A&M University who's done some pretty solid work on this that is correct Hempelman researched the incident and described it as a case, as we've already kind of established, of mass psychogenic or also known as sociogenic illness, which oftentimes is linked to very high stress situations you know, which certainly applies to schools, you know, where where the pressure is very high to succeed and to perform, especially at certain types of maybe, you know, this is an all-girls school, and, and oftentimes those are, anytime there are gendered schools, those usually are kind of high-performance, very academically rigorous settings, wouldn't you say, Ben? Like boarding schools. And again, this is a different country, so maybe all the schools are segregated in this way. But in my uh, experience, you know, when you have an all-girls school or an all-boys school, they're either some type of reform school or they are, like, really highly academically focused institutions. Yeah. And this this is something that Hempelman recognizes. And he says, hey, there are some social factors that are coming into play that need to be acknowledged, need to be interrogated a bit more. And he also points to geopolitical events. And he says, you know, this country is becoming newly independent. And this independence happens just a month before the laughing epidemic. Is there a relationship here? And we've got a great quote from Hempelman where he says, on the one hand, it sounded too good to be true. And on the other hand, people were citing it in support of all kinds of things across the spectrum and contradictory things. So this caused him to look back at the situation and ask a surprisingly deep question. He said, what does this situation tell us about humor? 
Right. And also he uh, he poses a question that we we often see in reports of these type of events. Did this actually happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which I think is an interesting one because this is, you know, uh, this is in the 60s. So uh, presumably the reporting would be pretty solid. So what do you think he means when he says, did this actually happen? Because we've also seen, you know, situations that are over, you know, blown in, in the historical record whether it be a battle or whether it be, you know, some event like this for particular maybe reasons associated with a political agenda. So do you think that's what he's getting at? Or what do you think he means when he said, did this actually happen? I I get the sense that he is questioning whether the story was embellished. Right. Right. I think, and I think that's a fair question to ask because 1960s, we've got mass media, but there can still be a lot of uh, storytelling. You know what I mean? Just like how when an historic event occurs, you know, it's um, just the next year, John F. Kennedy will be assassinated. And as the decades wound on since that assassination, more and more people started saying they were there that they actually witnessed it. Far more people than were actually there. So I think it's right to question how uh, the extent of this. And he's not being a jerk by asking that. Uh, but he was, you know, he confirmed, and multiple people have confirmed, that this laughing epidemic is real. It did occur. There is documentation. But Hempelman gets kind of annoyed when people point to this as evidence of laughter being contagious. He has the sense that this incident tells us much more about other stuff and not a lot about humor because he says, you know, this we have to look at this laughter as a nerve symptom, a nerve related symptom of psychogenic illness. And we have to think about it that way. And it's kind of reductive to say, oh, this is when contagious laughter goes wrong. So be careful, you know, if something makes you laugh too long. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, the idea we know we know laughter can be, uh, uh, you know, contagious, uh, but there are a lot of psychological reasons why that might be the case. You know, nobody wants to seem like the person that didn't get the joke. You know, it's a group think kind of mentality, especially if you're say in a movie, you know, or watching a movie with friends. I can usually tell when I truly. I mean, I, I think I know, and, and and all three of us know when we truly find something funny, but the mind is a very tricky beast. And uh, usually I can tell if I truly believe something is funny, if I laugh at it when I'm alone. I laugh at stuff by myself all the time. And apparently if you make yourself laugh, when you're just hanging out by yourself, apparently that's weird. But uh, I guess that's what we get for being only children. <laughs> that's probably true. We to not, you, Max, somehow. not you, I was going to say, I have a brother that's only a year and a half older than me, and I laugh by myself all the time. So whoever told you that, I, I is this full of bunk or we're all, you know, a little strange. Or we're all on our slow boat toward our own laughing epidemic. Uh, yeah, Hempelman points out that in these stressful situations, what happens is people find that they cannot extract themselves from an environment of constant stress of some sort. And he says that in this situation, when a person has no power over that stress, their their mind has a difficult time coming up with an appropriate response. So again, to Himpelman, you can identify certain demographics here. He says, quote, such a person is more commonly young than old, 
identifying female rather than male, and they tend to be employees rather than supervisors. And this has this this feeling, this stress, this response has to express itself somehow. And laughter happens to be one of the ways that it could come out. At least that's what I, I'm getting from his exploration. What do you think? I, I, I agree. And I also think part of his annoyance with it is in that whole like headline kind of mentality that we see all the time. Laughing sickness just sounds cool and creepy, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like uh, a story arc for the Joker. Right. And, it, and, it, and it's, you know, uh, history or, you know, journalists or whatever it might be, historians or journalists, glomming on to the most relatable and understandable aspect of something that is ultimately much more complex than just that one thing. Oh, no. Are you saying people oversimplify history? I think I am, Ben. I know oh, that's a hot take. But, oh. Uh, <laughs> yes. Reductive. Uh, reductive reporting. It, it, it's a thing. Uh, we see it all the time. And again, sometimes it is specifically toward an agenda of some kind, you know, to to, to create a sense of who the victor was or who, who the bad guys or the good guys uh, right. were. History is written by the winners. So <laughs> check the authors on your textbook. Uh, we also know that mass psychogenic illness in multiple forms may be fairly common. It's just not often reported under that name because there's this idea that you're you're attacking the validity of what's happening to people. And it really is happening to them. You know, they're not they're not waking up and making the choice to laugh for hours and hours. Uh, there is a real issue there. And when we talk about, okay, when we talk about social aspects of epidemics, I think one example that would surprise a lot of people, definitely surprised me at least, is something called the Pokemon shock, which happened <laughs> not too long ago in 1997. Now, were you guys Pokemon kids? Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer, check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com, that's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. 
This is important stuff. Your team can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car is called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your teen enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. No, it was a little past my age set. Um, I, I didn't really become a Pokemon kid until I had a kid. And then we started playing like Pokemon cards. Um, but then she kind of got over that pretty quick. But we do have a bunch of Pokemon cards. And it's actually a really fun game. It's kind of like Magic the Gathering, but like simpler and more, you know, kid friendly. But um, it, it's cool. I love, you know, I think we all love anime stuff and uh, the design and the whole idea of having to catch them all is interesting because it's sort of a trap because you can never catch them all because they're always making new ones. Well, you can try to catch them all like I'm trying to do here in my Pokemon Gold. What? You're supposed to be you're supposed to be producing this podcast. I, I can I can I can multitask. Okay. Well you remember the- Pokemon Go though? That was an epidemic on itself. I don't like it. Well, yeah, because we, we talked about that on stuff that I want you to know. Mm. The company, I think they're called Niantic, uh, uh-huh. were originally some sort of government intel offshoot that then split off and I don't started creating it. consumer products. Mm, I remember hanging out with uh, hanging out with work buddies yeah. and saying, no, don't put your phone. Don't put your phone toward me. I was one of those. I had a brief <laughs> stint of Pokemon going. And you would say stuff like, oh, no, Ben, you don't understand. It's on your shoulder, dude. I got it. I got to get it. I'm like, no, I'm running away. I don't want to be part of this. No, I want no part in this. Uh, This isn't specifically referring to Pokemon Go. This is much earlier than that, like in the original days. Right. uh, When Pokemon, the cartoon and the, you know, there were a lot of video games, too. There were a lot of like, uh, well, actually, this might even have been earlier than that. This is in the late 90s. So um, I'm I'm having a hard time thinking of the trajectory of all those games like Nintendo DS and all of that stuff. That probably was more in the 2000s. So this is really ground zero Pokemon days. Yeah. Like when it really took the country by storm in terms of the cartoon and the the card games, I think, was probably the biggest thing. 
Oh, man. Yeah. And this is, for everyone playing along at home, this is one year after the Olympics come to Atlanta, Georgia, 1997. And a lot of this is coming to us from an excellent article on Motherboard via Vice. Did Pokemon actually give kids seizures in the 90s? Shout out to author there, Kaylee Rogers. Kids are always going to be into flashy, fascinating stuff, and parents are always going to be concerned about some of the things that their kids see. Even before YouTube became so ubiquitous, even before social media came into its heyday. But in 1997, people started to ask, what if a cartoon can actually hurt my child? And it was December of that year that an episode of Pokemon aired in Japan, and apparently tens of thousands of children watching this experienced seizures. And soon enough, people were calling this the Pokemon shock. Yeah, so, okay, I was sort of off the mark. Um, the, 1997 is when the Pokemon cartoon originated in oh, Japan. Had the U.S. didn't smell. see, yeah, the U.S. Okay. didn't see its Pokemon craze until several years later, if I'm not mistaken. The franchise was created by Satoshi Tajiri in 1996, and then the cartoon debuted in 1997 and, and is ongoing with various iterations and, you know, tie-ins and video games and all kinds of different stuff, movies, etc. Mm -hmm. But this was specifically the original Japanese Pokemon craze that we're talking about here. Ah, uh, yeah. And it's almost, you know, it almost didn't make it to the States because people were worried about this Pokemon shock. The idea <laughs> that children were getting seizures caused a widespread panic in Japan, where Pokemon is still very, very popular now. And the show went on hiatus for four months. It almost got canceled. But a guy named Benjamin Radford, who co-authored a study on this, noted that the story may have become more dangerous than the actual events, like the, the folklore of it, the tale of it may have become scarier than what actually transpired. And Radford and his co-authors said this was fascinating. They, they thought they could bring something to the table here. So Radford in particular reopens the case out of, quote, just my own curiosity, so I could try to figure out what happened. And he traces down the exact episode. It's the 38th episode of season one. Can you imagine that? Every British television producer just had a heart attack. Unbelievable. Yeah. In terms of the length of a season. Right, right. You know, a, a British, British shows season. Six episodes, maybe. Right, yeah, max. Seven episodes. What was it? Sherlock Holmes was three episodes, but they were all like an hour and a half. Those are like mini, mini series and things like that. A lot of times they're self-contained and there won't be very many at all in a season. But uh, this is much more of an American, you know, phenomenon. Mm -hmm. uh, but even more so with these cartoons, 38, the 38th episode of an 82 episode long season. Wow. Um, and this for something about this episode right? Uh -huh. is, is what triggered this event. Um, it aired as, as usual on the evening of December 16th, 1997. The plot is that Ash, who's the young Pokemon trainer and, and his, you know, ragtag band of Pokemon, uh, gets, uh, transported into a, like a, I guess it's sort of like, um, 
kind of like a teleportation machine you might see in like Star Trek. Mm-hmm. Um, and they call it a Pokemon transmitter. Uh, and they get sent to an alternate universe that's kind of digitized versions of, of reality. Uh-huh. And then they have to battle a specific Pokemon, a digital Pokemon um, named Porygon that is being uh, deployed by the villains of the show who are the most low-key, least malevolent, bungling villains of any kind of show. You know they're always going to lose because they're kind of, it's like Dr. Claw in, uh, uh-huh. in, in, in Inspector Gadget. The stakes are quite low. Team Rocket. Um, and they're always trying to get Pikachu. They want Pikachu so bad. Yeah, uh, there's only, yeah, for whatever reason, that's the one they're always after. Then they've got, like, a cat that they hang they out with. They have a talking Pokemon. Them. They have a Pokemon that's, it's a Meowth that actually talks. It's the only one. That, that's such a cool Pokemon they have. And they're always like, no, we need these other Pokemon that are just like everything They're covetous else. Uh, is yeah. what they are. They're just covetous, power-hungry uh, psychopaths, sociopaths. And they're uh, always pulling these heists, right? And, and exactly. Porygon's part of this heist. Yeah, it's sort of like Pinky and the Brain, where in every single episode, their goal is to take over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, they, Team Rocket has a singular goal, just like that. So after Ash and company defeat the uh, the Porygon, that's when the team... I, I wonder, I, I wish I could uh, pull up some images from this episode. I'm imagining it would be stylized to some degree, this whole digital aspect of it. So uh-huh. I'm wondering if they used any kind of blocky, pixely kind of stuff to, 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 to represent this world, like sort of bad 90s representations of what the internet looks like. Because oh, yeah. they are then attacked by an antivirus program, but Pikachu, of course, saves the day with his famous Thunderbolt attack. Get it? Electricity, digital world. Nice That's job, right. Pikachu. Very good. He's very, very smart, even despite the fact that he can only say best Pikachu. Boy. <laughs> so, not, not to gender Pikachu. Gender, very unclear for a right, lot of these right, right, creatures, right. I would say. I think they're all pretty gender Oh, fluid. no, G- uh, Generation 2, they introduced gender. They do. Oh, okay. All right. Nerd. <laughs> you know these See, things. See, Max, I, I thought Max <laughs> wasn't paying attention. I thought he was lost in the Pokemon sauce, but you're, you're, you're here. All right. Yeah, I'm paying attention to answer the Pokemon question. That has not distinguished whether or not I'm lost in the Pokemon sauce or not. <laughs> yeah, fair point, my friend. Fair point. So, okay, here's where the Poke Rubber hits the Poke Road. The animators want to style on this a little bit. To your point, Noel, about it being a digital world. And so they use a technique that they call Paka Paka. And this is a this is a process wherein two colors flash rapidly on the screen. They're red Ooh. and blue flashes, right? We're all thinking epilepsy at this point, yes, right? We are. Yes, yeah. We are. 12 flashes per second for about six seconds. And you know, we Epilepsy is absolutely something that can be triggered by flashing lights. Well, you nowadays know? there's warnings. There's right. trigger warnings for anything. Like I just recently saw the new movie from Brandon Cronenberg, uh, Infinity Pool, mm-hmm. and it uses all in-camera and practical effects um, entirely. Um, and there is a scene that t- there's like a transformation of one of the characters that is is, is incredibly um Stroby, and uh, the same with I think the most recent Incredibles movie. There was a sign before you even bought tickets, letting you know. Uh, and, I, and I have to imagine that that is largely we have this event to thank for for that kind of thoughtfulness. You know, in terms of like making sure that everyone uh, has a good time. There's some people I know that have that are triggered by these types of flashes that just can't go to concerts for fear that there might be some sequence of lights that might bring on an attack. Right. And it might be something that a venue doesn't think is extreme enough to warrant a heads up. 
but it can still affect people with photosensitive epilepsy. And this is what parents are worried about. This is what a lot of people in the Japanese public are concerned with because they think, you know, at the very end of a show their kid loves, their kid might get a seizure due to this visual effect. But if you look at the reports and you see some discrepancies, the reports suggested or implied that up to 12,000 kids experienced dizziness, blurred vision, and convulsions after watching this episode of the show. But about one in 100 people have epilepsy, and only 3% of those one in 100 people have photosensitive epilepsy specifically. That's right. So it's not, you know, a one size fits all type situation. Um, that rate is a little bit higher in uh, in young children. But uh, these reports they were talking about suggested that 10 times as many people had uh, photosensitive epilepsy as might have been expected. Um, so perhaps this is a regional thing. It's 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 un, it's un, it's it's a little bit unclear, right, Ben? I mean, the question then becomes: it, Are Japanese kids more susceptible to photosensitive epilepsy? Is there a higher number that that sort of you know uh, kind of bucks the trend? I guess right. That, that's uh, the greater trend of of just human beings, or is there something else at play here? Right, right. And Max, you've got a great note about the numbers here where where you you said, look, using these percentages as as we understand them now, 40 million children would have to watch this show and they would only be watching it in Japan, right? Or primarily watching it in Japan. And for another note here, in 1997, the population of Japan was just a little over 126 million. So this would be and an a preposterous number of children, right? Right. Like, you know, if we, if we want to try to, like, eliminate variables or possible things, we can kind of eliminate, like, was it just a ridiculous number of people watched this episode? But it's like, no, it's like the amount of people who would have to watch this episode for those normal percentages to make sense for the amount of people who got sick just don't line up. Yeah, but the, the damage had been done. People were worried. You know, and they're your kids. You don't want bad. They're someone's kids. In general, people don't like bad stuff to happen to children because in general, people are decent. At least call me an optimist, but that's what I would You're like an to believe. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's it's a struggle. I'm, hey, I'm a nihilistic optimist. You're an optimist. Uh, thank you, Max. Thank an you. optimist prime. Oh, shucks. You guys, you guys, I didn't even get you anything today. But hey, call me your Megatron. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I'll be your huckleberry. Um, but hey, the question. So so what mm -hmm. is the issue here? How could this be something similar to the kind of copycat mentality that we've been describing, you know, that would require people physically seeing others uh, exhibiting these symptoms? If, if these kids are watching this show in their own private homes, they wouldn't know what was happening with the other kids watching the show in their own private homes. Right. Yeah. And this is where Radford goes into the psychogenic aspect, just like the the laughing epidemic. And he's saying, look, it's a, possibly a self-produced physical reaction. People have been convinced by these external influences. You know, another thing that makes, at least in my experience, another thing that kids really love 
is getting access to stuff they're not supposed to get access to, right? So how much cooler did that episode of Pokemon become when someone said, hey, you can't watch this show anymore, and so now you're a kid, you've heard the stories, right? And you sneak, you somehow sneak in a viewing, and you are so certain that something will happen to you that the reaction occurs or some kind of some kind of reaction occurs. And again, like any psychogenic phenomenon, this does not mean people are faking it. They're not making it up by and large. The symptoms are real. It's just they may be happening due to some other cause. And with this, we realized that, you know, we started digging in these into these stories and we discovered this larger phenomenon and we still have more that we want to explore. So this is going to be, uh, we, we talked off air, this is going to be a recurring thing for us. There's so many strange historical tales of epidemics from human civilization that have a lot of these commonalities. For now, uh, Noel, Max, it sounds like we're going to, we're going to call this a day and uh, hope that this episode does not itself become the cause of an epidemic. Or maybe if it's a good epidemic, epidemics are never good, right? No, they are not. And I do kind of want to just toss this in here at the end. Uh, cause it, it, I was thinking about this when we we're going through Pokemon shock, but it's like, I've been having problems with my skin, like allergic reactions. And so one of these things my doctor has me doing now is reintroducing things that I like, like to basically try to eliminate them as being a potential allergen. And so this weekend I ate tree nuts for the first time in a long time. And I'll tell oh, you right man. afterwards for about the next hour, I thought I was having an allergic breakout and then I went and did something and I was fine. And so it shows what like, you know, are what we can be like with situations like this. The power of suggestion, right? Because the mind is an amazing and often misunderstood uh, phenomenon itself. So we hope you enjoyed this exploration of epidemics. We are going to be back with some more, including things like, well, without spoiling it too much, we're going to get to Koro at some point, uh, and we can't wait for you to join us on that journey. In the meantime, uh, Noel, you think we got a, a Disney-related episode in the future, maybe? Oh, my God, yeah. That's a really good point, because when we were talking to our buddies over at My Mama Told You um, for a segment that should be coming out before long with uh, the stuff that I want you to know, crew, Matt, myself, and you, Ben, they were asking all these questions about Disney where I just returned from, one of them being, uh, is it true that at Disney, no one can actually ever die there because mm -hmm. if you die there, they remove your corpse and basically just trundle you out in the front door <laughs> through a series of secret tunnels. So while this might be a bit of, maybe this is a crossover episode where we have Matt on and talk about Love some it. Disney history kind of conspiracies uh, that are a little more lighthearted, maybe something more in the ridiculous history vein. Because mm. those parks at this point, I mean, Disney parks are 50 years old at this point. Hmm. It's the 50th anniversary. Um, and, and they've repurposed so many things. They've rebuilt things. They've replicated things. I mean, there really is some interesting history to the Disney theme parks uh, oh, yeah. in and of themselves outside of just the larger company. Not to mention, uh, I don't know if you guys know this, you probably do, but finally, Mickey Mouse is about to officially be in the public domain. 
Um, because Disney, yeah, it's happening. Disney is, if, if anyone has followed this for mm-hmm. a long time, the Disney, the Walt Disney Company has single-handedly been responsible for significant changes in laws surrounding intellectual property and, right. uh, and trademark. And they, you know, were able to continuously extend the Mickey Mouse character you know, extend that copyright or trademark. I'm, I'm, I may be confusing the two, but the point is, uh, things are supposed to enter the public domain after a hundred years or so. For example, Winnie the Pooh just did, and you'll notice there is a slasher movie called mm-hmm. Winnie the Pooh: Blood and Honey that is a direct result of that character entering the public domain. Oh, and that could yeah. soon happen with the mouse himself in 2024. Uh, depending on what Disney, uh, what the mouse's lawyers do. Mickey, what a journey. Uh, Mickey's also, you know, well-established in Japan. Uh, and so we'll see how this affects, we'll see how this affects uh, America's favorite mouse. They're uh, potentially and- saying that the, 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 um, the, that Mickey will be replaced by the purple dragon figment. As oh. the uh, as the mascot of of the Disney parks, at the very least, Disney's this is a going character. through a lot of changes. A lot uh-huh. of that didn't age well, you know. Song of the South, etc. Uh, so we have definitely got an episode or more on Disney uh, that's going to be coming your way, folks. We can't wait for you to join us and stay tuned for uh, some of our future episodes. We have some guests coming on. We don't want to spoil too much, but you're in for some wild rides. In the meantime, speaking of wild rides, thanks to our pal Alex Williams for this amazing soundtrack. Thanks to our research associate and super producer, Max Williams. Thanks to Disney. Thanks to Japan. Noel, thanks to you. I, I really, now I'm in my head about it. I really hope that we are never responsible for an epidemic. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I don't want to be patient zero or one, you know, two. Uh, I, 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 yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a, a heavy burden to carry. Right. <laughs> <laughs> heavy waste, heavy waste the crown. Oh, man. What a day. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity Presents, a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Discover. You know, in today's world, it seems the best treatment is reserved only for a few. Well, Discover wants to change that by making everyone feel special. That's why with your Discover card, you have access to 24-7 live customer service, as well as $0 fraud liability, which means you're never held responsible for unauthorized purchases. Finally, no matter who you are or where you are in life, you'll feel special with Discover. Learn more at discover.com slash credit card. Limitations apply. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. 
Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter.